At its core, uh, Creed III, uh, I believe, is a film about dealing with guilt. Adonis Creed and his friend Damien grew up together, and on one fateful night, they committed a crime. But only Damien was convicted of that crime, and only Damien went to prison uh, for 18 years. And because of him taking the fall, Adonis is able to become everything that he is, a successful boxer, a successful father, uh, a successful husband, everything to build a brand he is, is because of that particular night. And so both of these men deal with the realities of guilt, of something that they've done in their past and the different ways that we try and handle it until they can try and reconcile their relationship in the middle uh, of a ring. They deal with guilt in the ways that we as human beings seem to always try to deal with guilt. They either medicate it or they dedicate it. Like that's what we do uh, as human beings. We try and medicate our guilt, the things that we've done in the past. We all, we all have things, right? We all have words that we've said that we wish we could unsay. Or maybe we didn't say words that we'd like to go back and say. We all have things that we've done, things that if I could this morning give you a mulligan and you could go back and say, man, I would undo that. We all have a that. And so what we tend to do is that um, we try and ignore it, try and pretend like it's not there. Uh, Joby Martin says it's like a beach ball. You try and push it underwater and it just keeps popping back up, right, all the time. And so we medicate it. We medicate it chemically with substances We'll try and ignore it recreationally. We try and develop hobbies so you know that it's just, it's just not there. Financially, maybe we try and work and work and work uh, to outdo uh, the guilt. And if we don't try and medicate it, then we try and dedicate it. We look at our lives, we look at the things that we've done and we say, you know what, I'm a horrible person. I should have never done that. But now I'm gonna be the best person and we work and we try and stack up enough good things and good deeds that we can outdo that thing that we've done. But neither of those two things work. To deal with our guilt, to deal with our shame, we need two things. We need truth and we need eternal life. And for three years, Jesus, lived alongside of his disciples. And for those three-ish years, Jesus gave them truth and eternal life. And what we're gonna see this morning is that there's a contrast between two individuals in, in the end of the Gospel of John who deal with past indiscretions very, very differently. And we're gonna see it beginning in the context of the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, um, turn over there, and we'll look at first the reality that we need truth, that we need to hear this truth, this truth that Jesus is praying the night before he goes to the cross. The disciples get to, they get to hear it, uh, and they get to experience it. Jesus says this in John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to whom you have given to him. Jesus says first, Father, you have glorified me. You have glorified the Son. That word for uh, glorified is the Hebrew word kavod. Um, so let's say that together on three. Ready? One, two, three. Kavod. 
Oh, man, that's terrible. Terrible. Let's try it again. One, two, three. Kabod. It means weight in Hebrew. Jesus' relationship with the Father, it was substantive. It was weighty. It was heavy. It was significant enough. It became the weighty thing that guided his life. The disciples witnessed it in him, and they wanted it. They wanted what Jesus had with the Father. This, the thickness, if you will, of that, of that relationship. And then in verse 2, Jesus says, I have come to give them eternal life. In other words, this is what I came to do. It's the night before he's going to the cross. Jesus says to the Father, Father, what I came to do, I've done it. I've executed. I've given to them this gift, this eternal life. Now, for you and me, I think it's important for us to recognize not only the wonder of eternal life, but also, if we're going to receive it, what an insult eternal life is to us. Because to receive eternal life means that we're initially excluded from eternal life. That we're initially not, that we're born into this world broken and sinful, which is why we do the things that we regret the most, which is what things create guilt in our lives, which the beach ball that we keep trying to push down, push, keep under, all that comes from the fact that we're born broken into, into the world. And so the fact that we have to receive eternal life is somewhat somewhat of an insult to us. But at the same time, it's absolutely, is absolutely reality for us. When I think about the, the gospel and this idea, that first idea that we talk about all the time, that we are flawed, flawed and broken. Um, I had the chance to get out of town um, a week or 10 days or so ago to kind of meet with some thought leaders about church planting. And uh, Angie uh, got to go with me. And so we were in meetings for a couple of days. Um, and at the end of those couple of days, we kind of ended that time together with dinner. Uh, together, there was probably um, 40 of us, husbands and wives, who were there. And so one of the guys in our group took it upon himself uh, to plug his uh, iPhone into the speakers where we were and to operate as the DJ. Um, for the night. So he kept playing. So, so as we were leaving, we we're all getting up out of the tables and moving out. He teed up uh, what I guess he thought was a celebratory song. So this is the song that he teed up. So that song, right, written by Montel, performed by Montel Jordan uh, as well. One of the guys in our group who's actually standing right beside me is a guy named Brian Loritz. And so Brian knows Montel. And so immediately, as soon as the song comes on, Brian FaceTimes Montel. Montel picks up. And he's like, Montel, look at what we're doing. As he pans the crowd. Now, like I said, Angie and I are standing right beside Brian. And so he pans kind of back to us. He's like, look, Montel. And there's me and Angie on the screen. And so what? I don't know what to do, right? Angie looks up and goes, <laughs> and, I, and I did worse. I went, <laughs> right? and it's like, I, I felt like Montel Jordan was looking at, at me going, stop doing that to my song. <laughs> Quit it, like stop it, right? You're ruining, you're wrecking my song. And I thought about that afterwards and I thought, man, there are times in my life, I don't know if you feel this way or not, but there are times in my life where I feel like God is looking down at me from heaven and he's like, stop it. 
Stop wrecking the life I've given to you. Quit it. You're messing it up. But sin and guilt and shame and regret, this is how we do it. This is human nature to us. It just comes, it just comes naturally to us. And so when you look at the last night of, of Jesus' life, and you realize what happens with Jesus and the disciples, there's just this unique picture that exists coming out of the Last Supper, headed towards Jesus' prayer, right, that we're looking at in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to show it to you, um, maybe on a map of Jerusalem. Maybe it'll help us see it. So Jesus and 11 of the disciples, they leave the Last Supper. They head to Gethsemane um, up here. So you've got Jesus up here praying this prayer in the garden, minus one of the disciples, Judas, who's come to the upper city down here. He's at the house of Caiaphas, and he is making a deal to betray Jesus for 30 pieces um, of silver. And so this is, I mean, this is a 20-minute walk in the city. But just imagine, if you will, just the juxtaposition of what is happening Judas is down here committing what maybe we would think, right, would be the ultimate sin. While Jesus simultaneously is up here in the garden praying for the faithfulness to go to the cross to forgive the sin that Judas is committing at the very same, at the very same time. And what I feel like I have learned and am still learning is that there is a little bit of Judas in every one of us. Because we're going to watch and we're going to see how Judas deals or doesn't deal with guilt. He's going he's to betray Jesus for the price of uh, a common uh, slave, 30 pieces of silver. But then he can't live with what he's done. And so on Friday, he goes back to the leaders of the temple, Caiaphas and the others, where he's made this deal, and he takes the 30 pieces of silver, and he tries to give it back. And they're not taking the money back because it's blood money. And they refuse. And so Judas takes the 30 pieces of silver in the temple, and he just throws it at them. Matthew 27, uh, chapter 27, verses 5 through 10. And Judas leaves there, and it's not enough for him. It's not enough that he tried to stack up a good deed on top of a bad deed, right? It's not enough for him that he didn't keep the money. The beach ball just pops. And so he goes out, Acts chapter 1, verse 18, I think. He goes out and he commits suicide by hanging himself in a field. And so the leaders of the temple then take the 30 pieces of silver and they buy the piece of ground. They call it a potter's field where you throw old pottery shards and other things that you would dump into, into that field. Now, that's historical record. We have hundreds of thousands of manuscript copies, not tens, not uh, hundreds, not that, hundreds of thousands of manuscript copies that detail that reality from the first century. You say, well, why, do you, why is that such a big deal? Because I just want to illustrate, I hope for you, how the scriptures give us truth. 1946, there's a Bedouin child who's in a community called Qumran playing out in some caves. And he throws a rock, and the rock hits something that doesn't sound like another rock. 
And he goes down and he uncovers one of the most significant archaeological finds of all the 20th century called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in these scrolls, there are 64 out of 66 books in the Old Testament. We have from, uh, from antiquity, 75 to 250 years before Jesus was ever, was ever born, ever walked the planet, scientifically dated. Those scrolls are there. And so one of those scrolls is the scroll of Zechariah. It's about 150-ish years before Jesus was ever born. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13 say this. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver, a specific price, and I threw them to the potter, a specific person, in the house of the Lord in a specific place. Now you can read that and say, well, that doesn't really prove anything. I would say to you, specific place, specific person, specific price, all written down 150 years before Jesus was ever born. It's amazing. This would be like um, Abraham Lincoln having said in 1863, the day will come when a, a man of any color can play a basketball game and we'll pay him $400,000 a game to play basketball in an arena. People would have looked at President Lincoln and been like, you're nuts. Because an arena was a place where soldiers fought and they didn't even know what basketball was. And if that had happened, we'd have been like, that's a miracle. And it happens over and over and over again from the Old Testament to the New Testament in the scriptures. We need truth. And truth has been given to us. And I think the reality where, um, where Judas was concerned is that he was ready at times to receive it. And at times, he just couldn't fathom it. And I've already said to you, I think we're more like him maybe, maybe than we realize in some ways. Because the reality where Judas is, I mean, and we don't want anything to do with him, right? Think about how we name our children. Matthew, great. Mark, yeah. Luke, yeah. John, Paul, great. Judas, nope. <laughs> we don't want to, no one names their kid that. You don't know how much Judas affects your life, Friday the 13th. Why are we so nervous about Friday the 13th? Because Judas was considered the 13th person at the Last Supper, and he throws the money back on Friday, Friday the 13th. That's, that's where that comes from. Otis Elevators says that um, over 75% of the 20-story buildings in our country don't have a 13th floor, all because we're trying to avoid, we, we don't want anything to do with them. But think about this. In the middle of the Gospels, Jesus sends the 12 disciples out and they go out two by two and do ministry and power, right? They see amazing things happen. There's no mention of the fact that Judas did not go. So we must assume that Judas went out in these ministry excursions. Listen, Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to have the life that I believe Judas always wanted. Here's his problem, and your problem, and my problem. 
Judas wanted eternal life, but he wanted it on his own terms. Judas wanted eternal life, but on his own terms. When you and I think of Christianity, a lot of times we think about it in a variety of frameworks. We think of Christianity like a moral code, like a Christian is a person who keeps the Ten Commandments. Or we think about religion like a geography, right? Like if you're from the East, maybe you're a Buddhist, or you're from Central Asia, you're a Muslim, or if you're from the West, then maybe you call yourself a Christian. Or maybe um, we think about Christianity like a denomination, right? Um, what are, are you a uh, are you a Catholic or are you a Lutheran or are you a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Methodist? We think about it from a denominational perspective. None of those things define Christianity. Rather, it's very simple. Very, very simple, I think. If you answer this one question, here's how you know if you're a Christian. Do you have eternal life? That's what Jesus said he came to give us. And you're like, well, okay, that, that's great and all, but I don't know. I don't know if I do it. How do I, how do I know? Well, it begins with a definition, and that's verse 3 of John 17. This is where Jesus will pick the prayer back up for us. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I would suggest to you that eternal life is the core essence of what it means to be a Christian, is eternal life. And Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they might know you. Eternal life is this weighty kind of kabod, substantive relationship with God, this thing that is so thick in the context of your life that it guides everything else. And this is life eternal, that they, that's you and me, might know you, God. So the reality is, this is what separates us, this is what helps us. You saw it in the, in the trailer uh, with Creed. There's this moment where Adonis is struggling. He's struggling with emotion, he's struggling with the guilt of his past, with what he's done, with how he feels like doing and his trainer, Boog, looks at him, and he says, you gotta let go of the guilt. You gotta walk out of what was, and into what is. Now the good news for you and me spiritually is that we can do that. The bad news is that we cannot do that on our own. We can't, we can't do that by ourselves. So we understand this reality then of eternal life is that eternal life doesn't begin when you end. That's how we tend to think about it, right? that eternal life is this thing that happens to me someday when I die. Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they might know you. And so what happens when you and I come to know Christ, not based upon our good works, not based on stacking things up, not based on our own success, that we come to know God on the basis of his work, not our work. His work on the cross, his subsequent resurrection, pays for our sins such that we can have this, this kavod, weighty relationship with God, this thing that guides all of our lives, and as it guides us, we experience eternal life that starts now. Not out there in the future, someday. That's eternal life, do you have it? Do you have this relationship 
that you feel underlying everything else that answers all of those heavy, weighty questions. It doesn't mean you never have doubts. It doesn't mean you never have fears. It doesn't, none of those things. But it's the guiding thing. It is the thing on which you rest, the thing on which you stand. It is the thing on which you are drawn to day after day after day. Jesus says this in so many ways in his, uh, in his life and ministry. And sometimes... Uh, in off-the-wall ways. One of my favorites is Matthew chapter 6. Jesus looks at a crowd one day and he says, you ever thought about the lilies? Can you imagine being in that crowd? Jesus is saying, hey, think about a lily. They don't toil. They don't spin. But they're beautiful. Jesus says, just think about the beauty it's in a lily. Why would he want us to do that? Because Jesus is saying, if God would do that for a flower, if God would stitch that kind of beauty together in a flower, what do you think? What kind of beauty do you think awaits you? What kind of beauty is God? But if he would do that for an inanimate object, what will he not do for you to help you deal with guilt and regret? And what will he not deal as he moves you forward towards freedom? So I believe that applying the gospel to our identity is the beginning. It's the starting blocks of healing. And so whenever we come up against these, um, these emotional kind of taxing things from our past and our lives, um, a lot of times it's, it's difficult to know, like, where do we go? And, and we have great tools, right? I, I feel like even our church, I feel like we got, we've got some really good, like, get involved with other people. Get involved in a group, a place, a group of people that are, um, that are for you, with you that, you, that you can talk with. And that's a great thing. And sometimes we'll say, hey, you should go to counseling. Go see a biblical counselor, somebody that you can talk this through. And those are great things. But the things underneath those things, the foundation, the beginning of healing is the gospel. It is that you and I come to a spot in our lives where we say, I cannot fix myself because I was born into this world broken by sin. And I acknowledge that. And in humility, I am coming to Christ to do in me what? I can't do in myself. I can't earn eternal life, but he is willing to give it to me. So do you have it? Do you have eternal? It's, it's not a moral code. It's not a, it's not a denominational moniker, right, that, that you wear or that I wear. It's not a geography. Eternal life. You got it? Back in the early 2000s, there was a, a church that did um, a video that kind of became Christian famous video, and it was called Cardboard Stories. And so during the middle of worship, um, what happened is there was a line of people up on the stage, and they'd walk up with a piece of cardboard. And on the front of the cardboard, they would detail um, a regret, maybe something that would bring about guilt, right, in most um, of our lives. I remember watching the video, like there was one that a guy had a, a piece of cardboard and it said addicted to pornography for 27 years. 
Another guy walked out with a, a piece of cardboard and it says, life wrecked by atheism. A couple walked out. Uh, the wife had one side of the cardboard. The husband had the other side of the cardboard. And it says, uh, multiple affairs between us and a divorce for us. But what each one of them would do whenever they came out, they would hold the sign like this for you know five seconds or so, and then they would flip it. And on the back side, it talked about how their relationship with God had answered what was on the front side. So for example, the guy um, who had uh, addicted to pornography for 27 years, he flipped it and he said, chains broken and living in grace. Or um, the guy who said, uh, life wrecked by atheism, he flipped his and he says, but now I know the truth and the truth has set me free. Or the couple who had um, the um, multiple affairs uh, between us uh, and a divorce for us, they flipped, but they said, remarried, living and loving in the grace of God. And there were these dramatic stories. It was, it was incredible. But as I thought about that more and more over the next couple of years, I thought, you know, I, I do wish that Somebody would have walked out, maybe a young parent would have, would have walked out and said, you know, felt like a lousy parent today. And then they flip it and they said, but I bathed my kids today. Yes, I bathed my children, right? Or somebody would have walked out and said, you know, felt lazy uh, this morning. And then they flipped it over, but I showed up at work on time, right? Because for a lot of us, it's not the dramatic thing. It's just this underlying sense that we never measure up that we're never, ever good enough. And we carry this, this weight, this guilt. And listen, guilt is not the worst thing we do, but a lot of times it's the thing that causes the worst things that we do. Causes the worst emotions that we have. Um, pick, a, pick an emotion like anger. It's, I mean, it's just, ubiquitous right in our culture today. We have, we have new terms for it even. We send people to anger management. We, um, we call people rageaholics who are out of control in terms of how do you deal with a, an emotion like that? You know what's interesting to me is that even in the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays, you see the undercurrents See the undercurrent of how he wants to give us, not just that he wants to give us eternal life, but how he wants to give us eternal life. Luke records Jesus praying this in that garden prayer in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. Now in the Passover meal that they had celebrated, right there are four cups. Some have argued that there is a fifth cup that represents the wrath of God, that Jesus is in a sense praying, Father, I don't, I don't wanna drink this cup. The, the anger, the wrath, the payment of God against the sin of all my, even though Jesus never sinned, that he would take the sin of all people, all mankind, past, present, future, to him. Your sin, my sin, on his shoulders. And in doing so, that even though he never earned any of it, he would also experience the guilt and the shame that comes with. Understanding, knowing that in taking the wrath of God against sin, that there was gonna be this 
moment, this time on the cross where there's going to be a disruption in the relationship between uh, Jesus the Son and God the Father of some cosmic sort when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the rightness and the holiness of God can't bear up underneath the weight of sin that was laying on the shoulders of Jesus the Son. And if you struggle with anger, how can you look at Jesus on the cross, bearing, drinking the wrath of God against, how can you see Jesus taking the anger of God for your sins and not be changed? How can you live in anger? I'm not saying you don't ever have an angry moment or an upset moment, but how can you not be changed when you see Jesus bearing that weight for you? All such that he could give us eternal life so that you and I could have our own cardboard story, so that you and I could be the kinds of people who let go of the guilt and the shame. That doesn't mean, we, doesn't mean we're absent of all the consequences of the choices. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean from a spiritual perspective is that you and I can walk in freedom because God has given us truth that we attach our hearts to. And when we embrace the truth, the truth will set us free to the life that we've always wanted. So do you have it today? And if you don't, you can receive it today. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna sing, and we're gonna sing, who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from heaven to wear my sin and to bear my shame. Hallelujah to the one. Let's pray together. God, we bring our lives to you. We bring who we are today and we bring who we have been. We bring the best of days and the worst of days and we bring those to you, God, in light of this incredible gift that you've given us in eternal life. You are the one. You have borne our grief and our sorrows. And God, by your stripes, the ones received on the cross, we are healed. And because of your resurrection, we are empowered to be different kinds of people, to be changed, to be transformed. God, will you help us become the kinds of people, God, that we want to become. We are grateful that we do not serve a dead God buried in the ground somewhere but that you are our living hope. It's in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand and we'll worship together.